Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Music Therapy Show. I am Janice Lindstrom, the host of this show. And uh, joining me today is Dr. Megan Masco because we are talking about Journal Club. Uh-huh. We're talking about the uh, Journal of Music Therapy, the Fall 2015 issue, Volume 52, Number 3. And today is Friday, January 22nd, 2016. So this is our first show of 2016 and it gets to be journal club yay yay all right so journal club always runs long so we're just going to dive right in okay so uh actually let me just give a brief purpose of journal club so i I started this because i needed a way to make me read the journals because i wanted to stay informed about the current practice of music therapy and i got tired of just piling up journals on my desk saying i'll get to those in a minute and never getting to them. And uh, then I also wanted to understand how to translate research into my practice. I like to practice that. And this is really tough for me to do sometimes. So uh, I also wanted an excuse to drag Megan along for the ride, too. And she said <laughs> yes. <laughs> so And it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. So let's dive right in. The All right, first I, I got to say that I, I love oh, that we cram, just like our students do. I know. <laughs> I know. It always, I always try to give us lots of time and then always wait until the last week of the show. <laughs> yep. Anyway, so the first article is called Coping with Work-Related Stress Through Guided Imagery and Music, which is often abbreviated as GIM. It's a randomized controlled trial, which is considered by some to be the gold standard of research. Right? And we've talked about that, I'm sure. Yep. Um, These are by uh, Dr. Beck, Dr. Hansen, Dr. Gold, and they are all in foreign countries. Denmark, Denmark, and Norway. Denmark and Norway. Yep. Yeah. So, um, I thought this one was kind of nice. So, on the first, first glance, I'm not a GIM practitioner, so I can't really relate this article to, to my work directly. But um, the literature review provided some really nice information about stress and other studies on music therapy and stress, which I, I do work in stress and deal with my own stress. So that, that information I can use. And then there were some descriptions of the stress symptoms that are useful, and I can use some of this information, even though it's not going to directly be related to what I do. I can still use it to inform my practice when I'm working with clients that are dealing with stress or when I'm managing my own stress. Mm-hmm. So, so the you want to say about that? The, yeah, I'll, well, I'll just, I'll just keep going. Stress. It's the new semester. Stress. We could just say stress. Stress, stress, stress. Right. <laughs> so the, the participants were folks that were um, at an occupational health ward in a Danish hospital. And these were all folks who had um, health issues that were related to job-related stress. And it was a parallel design. So they had a GIM group, and then they had a weight uh, standard care and weight list group. And I think, I believe the standard care group was standard care with the weight list. So everybody got GIM at some point. Right. Um, Yes. So they had 
the they did data collection before the intervention started, um, after the interventions were done, and then they had a, a follow-up meeting, which was really nice. And that's something that winds up being missed by, um, I think, a lot of studies. We don't we forget to do the follow-up to see if the things that we saw happen during the study are still there afterwards, uh, mm -hmm. right? Because it's all about generalization. I was just teaching that to my class the other day. So the folks in the non in the waitlist group had data collected at the zero point, and then nine weeks, um, and then at week eighteen total for the study was when they had their post GIM because I believe they started their GIM at week nine, and then week twenty seven was their nine week follow up. And the Authors of this study took lots of different kinds of data, nice triangulation. Um, so they had biological data, and they also had um, some self-report questionnaires, which was nice. So you get that, you can look at the self-report and then line it up with sort of the, you know, quote, hard data. Um, and it looks like they actually did a modification of the Bonnie method of guided imagery and music. So not, not focused quite so much on... Um, Oh, gosh, I think I just confused this with another study. Nope, they did modify it. So they had they did more with, like, guided relaxation and less with um, the, less with, like, the personality reconstruction, if I'm understanding that correctly. Does that sound right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And they used different kinds of music, too. They didn't use the, um, like, the programmatic classical music. They used other kinds of music. Right. Um, yeah. So the, and, and then they also had the songs CDs. in the back too. Yeah, and then they and I love that they included what music they put on the CDs because they got two CDs with 23 pieces of music that were given to the participants so that people could listen to the music at home. And I'm so thank you, authors, for including that in this study. I appreciate that. Right. Um, what's Interesting about this study is what they were looking at was yeah. um, uh, workers on medical leave or sick leave and how long they stayed on that sick leave. Like, did they take the full amount or come back early um, based on the the GIM? Mm-hmm. Right? So they, excuse me, the authors looked at uh, cortisol, testosterone, and melatonin. And so cortisol, all of those are associated with stress. Melatonin, you might know if you ever take melatonin because you have difficulty sleeping. Um, and they they did a fantastic job of really trying to control as many variables as possible. They do an excellent job of reporting in quite a significant amount of detail the analysis of the analysis and storage of um, how they worked with their biological data, um, and then they also collected data from the perceived stress scale, the POMs, good old POMs, the profile of mood states, um, sleep quality. There was a, a 16-item scale that measured physical distress symptoms. And work readiness, and I love the work readiness assessment because the work readiness is just how ready do you feel to go to work? I love that. Short, mm -hmm. sweet, to the point. 
gets exactly gets at exactly what you want to know. Um, they also use the World Health Organization Wellbeing Index, the Generalized Anxiety Disorder Index, the Major Depressive Disorder Index, and then um, they had an immediate stress scale that they used before and after every GIM session. So, what I'm going to skip the statistics if that's okay with you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I often do when I read these articles because the statistics have less meaning to me uh, than, like, the discussion part. Yeah. So basically what you could see is that the cortisol levels, the stress hormones went down, basically. Um, there weren't any changes, it looked like, for testosterone or melatonin, but cortisol um, finally got to the point of being significant. That change in cortisol was significant. And that's important because cortisol is a strong indicator of um, of, of your stress levels, right? And it's an indicator, too, sort of tangentially of how your immune system is doing. And not surprisingly, when you're, when you're completely stressed out, your immune system doesn't function terribly well. Um, there were... I know that yeah, firsthand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there were medium to large effect sizes for all of the outcomes. So basically, the bottom line here is that GIM was more was more effective than standard care when it came to the self-reported stress symptoms. And some GIM, even if it was later in the process, was was better than no GIM, but the GIM earlier in sort of the healing process was more effective than GIM. Um, later in the healing process, which is interesting. Um, GAM seemed to have a strong impact on the those self-reports of mood measures, so the well-being, mood disturbance, anxiety, and depression. Um, but the, the biological data, as is often the case, the biological data wasn't terribly significant. But it looked All like, right. too, the, the folks who had GIM went back to work earlier. So there you go. There you go. I like GIM, personally. I wish there were more practitioners in my area so I could partake of it I know. more regularly. I know. So fascinating to me. Anyway, so the, the next article is called Measuring Supportive Music and Imagery Interve Interventions, the Development of the Music Therapy Self-Rating Scale. And this is by Dr. Tony Meadows, Dr. Deborah Burns, and Dr. Susan Perkins. And um, I liked this one because I the supportive music and imagery interventions, they had a nice description of what that means in the method section. And um, this is something that I do practice at times with certain clients. And um I liked the I liked the description. Um I liked the scale uh that they or the tool that they were testing out. And it's it's given in Appendix A and it's a Likert based reading scale, the session the music therapy session self reading scale. Um and this one, I think I could easily use it with my patients. I don't work in um, cancer directly, but I supervise students that do. 
Um, and I also can see how this might provide some information that I can use with uh, with other patients in other settings that aren't necessarily dealing with cancer, but um, in chemotherapy, but it would still be uh, easily adaptable for that. Oh, absolutely. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Did, did Are you like me? Did you just sort of automatically hear this article in your head in Dr. Meadows' accent? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did, too, which made reading it even more fun. Um, yeah, I I found this scale to be unbelievably helpful. It's what I appreciate about it is that, number one, it is based on the responses of our clients, right? It's based on what our patients tell us they are experiencing during music therapy, which gives us a really good idea of what it is about music therapy that seems to be bringing about change in our patients, right? Because that's what helps us develop evidence-based interventions. Um, it's also what helps us provide evidence to our third-party payers and our employers and all of that. Um, and I actually, I there was a paragraph on page 369. It was the second paragraph of the page, so I just highlighted the whole paragraph because to me that it felt like it really encapsulated the whole article. And it says, in addition to identifying the benefits of supportive music and imagery sessions, the MTSRS advances our understanding of music therapy practice as a resource-oriented practice in which patients may connect to inner resources that help mitigate some of the negative experiences of the treatment process. In this case, they're referring to chemotherapy. It recognizes the interconnectedness of mind, body, spirit, and the potential of patients to draw upon different elements of this interconnection to manage and even thrive during chemotherapy. And as somebody who does work with patients who are actively in treatment, often in the chemotherapy suite, so while my patients are going through chemotherapy, that's when I'm working with some of them too, um, I do feel like that that's what I see, you know, that, that patients recognize that they do have these inner resources that they can access. And some of them really, truly do, the ones who really can connect to that, really do even thrive as they're going through the chemotherapy process. And I feel like the the authors did a fantastic job not only of taking what patients were telling them and turning that into a measure, but then they did a really thorough job of psychometrically evaluating the the tool. And I actually what I also really appreciated about this article was the limitation section. Um, they do a great job of saying, look, you know, there's it's not like you get a total score on this thing. Um, and we don't know exactly, you know, what that means. We don't know, we can't say, oh, if you get a low score on this, then, then that means X, Y, Z. There isn't a direct correlation. But it can potentially indicate that if somebody has, um, let's say, a lower score on, this, on these ratings, then maybe they are, maybe this isn't the right intervention for them, right? Maybe they need a little bit more in-depth therapeutic process. Um, or maybe they need just a different approach, or maybe maybe they need a different kind of intervention altogether because perhaps they are, you know, maybe their depression is quite high or the, the anxiety is quite high. They say um, the meaningfulness of the ratings are unclear, but it, it does still give you an idea. You know, if somebody is scoring 
high, really high on this, then, then they might be more connected with those inner resources. And if they're scoring lower on this, then maybe they aren't connecting with those and they need a different kind of approach, which as a therapist, that's really helpful for me to know. Mm-hmm. How effective are the interventions that I'm using? And then, you know, taking that feedback and going, okay, how can I adjust this for future sessions so that this is as an as appropriate as possible for my patient to help them achieve whatever their goals are? So, All right. Uh, can you describe, like, really briefly what it means to psychometrically evaluate a rating scale or a test? <laughs> Because oh. I feel yeah, like that, kind was the, of. that was the purpose of this study was to psychometrically evaluate the MTSRS, and yeah. um, that sounds important. <laughs> but, it is, it is but I don't important. Know exactly because, what it means. So think back to when you took research methods, right? And there's two things that we that we really care about in terms of research, and especially in terms of the scales that we use to measure the effectiveness of something or the impact of something, and that is that it needs to be reliable and it needs to be valid. So it need so if we do the same thing over and over and over again, we should get sort of the same results. Okay, so that's mm-hmm. why we um, we should replicate studies. So if we can see if we can replicate the results. Um, the the valid part is does this measure the, does this actually measure the thing I want it to measure? Right. Rather than accidentally going after some kind of red herring. So one of the ways that you can determine if a new rating scale is reliable and valid is by comparing it to scales that we already know are reliable and valid. And that's what they've done here. They've So they've taken their scale, their rating scale that they developed, and they've looked at other rating scales that we know are valid it, that also measure some of the same things. And the reason that they had so many different ones that they were looking at, I suspect, is because the um, MTSRS rates those four different areas. Mm-hmm. So so then they had to look at other scales that measure similar things. And then they, so what you do is then you compare the results from your scale to results from those other scales that are, that we know are valid. And so you look to see, are they pretty close? You know, nothing's ever 100%. Right. So how do they compare to one another, essentially? And then how does it compare? And then you always have to have internal validity, too. So that's, that's okay. that was, a that was a, like, a two-minute summary of research methods. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's a good scale. That's what we need to know. It is a good scale. <laughs> So Deb Burns is in the chat room, and she said that a measure can be reliable but not valid, meaning that yeah. it can measure something consistently but not measure something but, other than what you – but it actually measures yeah. something other than what you intend it to measure. Um, and the yeah. last thing I wanted to point out was that this research was supported by, in part, by the Arthur Flagler Fultz Research Fund, which uh, is a – I just love that we have that available to in through AMTA, our national association. Yeah, right on. All right. Yeah, and actually, there so then, there are some really oh. funny stories. If you if you Google, um, you there are fun stories that you can go and find about researchers who found really reliable results, but that were completely invalid. <laughs> it's 
sort of that idea of like you know everybody everybody who's ever died took a breath. <laughs> right, so you can have these false. Right. So you can wind up with these false correlations. Well, then breathing must, you know, breathing must precipitate death. death. Yeah, yeah, breathing must cause death. Kind of like everybody who's ever <laughs> eaten a carrot died. So we should just stop eating carrots. That's a good point. But then everybody's ever eaten chocolate chip cookies have died too. So that's true. Anyway, see? all right, know, false back on topic. Okay. I know. Sorry. It's the first the one of the therapy. year. We're easily distracted. <laughs> So we have music we have music therapy, clinical practice, and hospice, differences between home and nursing home delivery. And I love this article um, for purely selfish reasons. That, and it's really well written. Um, this is by, uh, I know it's Shaudi Liu. I think it's Liu. might be Liu. Um, a student at IUPUI, Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. Say that five times fast. Dr. Deborah Burns, Dr. Russell Hilliard from Seasons Hospice, uh, Timothy Stump, and Dr. Kathleen Unroe, who is uh, a physician at in Indiana at the Respect Signature Center at IUPUI. So this article was um, they the researchers looked at medical records, so for patients who had already died, um, they looked at medical records for seasoned hospice patients, and some of them had been in nursing homes and some of them had been at home uh, when they received their services. So it was a retrospective look at electronic medical records. Um, The records were from January 1st, 2006 to December 31st of 2010, and that was a lot of records, I'm guessing. They excluded people who were younger than 18 years of age or if there was an administrative error, um, and those do happen. So they uh, Seasons Hospice is a large employer of board certified music therapists and I love the fact that they really they stick to um the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization guidelines which is a music therapist for every 100 patients. Um and then we so music therapists sit as part of the interdisciplinary group. So the researchers looked at the medical records, pulled out the patients um, who'd received music therapy services, looked at their location of care, whether they were at home or in the nursing home, um, looked at how many music therapy sessions they had, how many hours of music therapy services they received, and the length of visits. And um, and there's all sorts of fun, looks like they did a linear regression, yeah, generalized linear regression. Um, to look at some of those differences. So there were huge sample, huge sample, 4,804 records um, that of patients that received music therapy services in that from 2006 to 2010. That's amazing for a music therapy study. I, I actually can't think of another music therapy study that has an end that's that large. Um, let's see here. I thought this was interesting that the the nursing home patients tended to be female older, unmarried, and Caucasian, which has also been my experience as a music therapist working Mm -hmm. in hospice care. Um, So for me, the part that I was quite selfishly the most excited about were these referral reasons. Why were people referred for music therapy services? And it's super interesting that it was different between the nursing home folks and the people who were at home. Now, first of all, the nursing home folks, the most common diagnosis was dementia. 
And for the folks that were at home, the most frequent diagnosis was cancer. So that that in itself actually is pretty darn interesting. Um, the number one reason for referral for both categories, nursing home and at home, number one reason for referral was quality of life. No surprise there. Number two was isolation. Um, oh, then we had a tie. So then we have family support, spiritual support, and emotional support rounding out that top group. Um, it, but it was different for people who were in the nursing homes and people who were at home. So for people who were in the nursing homes, their number one reason for referral was isolation, social isolation, which, again, makes a lot of sense. Um, and then for at-home people, the number one reason for referral was patient, family, emotional, and spiritual support. And that is also really interesting. So we, it, But it also makes a lot of sense, right? So folks who are at home receiving hospice care have someone there, they have family there, so they're not going to be as isolated as somebody who is in a nursing home who is not living with family. Um, let's see here. Number two was the same for both groups, nursing home and at home, and that was quality of life. So, again, it, you know, it seems... It all seemed very familiar to me. It's familiar information. There have been a couple of other studies. They're older, uh, I think 2004, 2007, that looked at referral reasons for music therapy services. The same, we, the information that we get from this article is similar to that, but it gives us a really good indication that patients who are in nursing homes have different needs. From music therapy, you know, for music therapy services, and are likely to be referred for different reasons than patients who are at home. Um, there are, there were differences um, again for like length of time and number of sessions between nursing home and at home patients. And for me, also as somebody who works with facilities trying to get them to hire music therapists and encouraging them to hire music therapists and potentially expand music therapy services they already had. Um, it was interesting that the primary author talks about um, staffing decisions, the importance of this information on staffing decisions. So, you know, patients who are the, let's see here, they talk about some hospices have large nursing home populations, and some hospices have mostly patients that are at home, and some of them have a combination. So the hospices that I worked at all were a combination, sort of like half, half at home and half nursing home. Um, so you need to have the staffing might be a little bit different if you have patients that are mostly in nursing homes versus patients that are mostly at home. Um, I did. I thought it was interesting that some of the findings were, you know, that the length and the number and length of music therapy sessions can potentially be influenced by where the person is being seen and by their diagnosis. And I, this echoes my experience as a clinician pretty much perfectly. Um, I also found that to be true. Um, yeah, what'd you learn? I got super excited well, about this one. I don't know if you can tell. 
I could tell, and I like that you were excited about it. Um, I liked this one. I didn't. So again, I read research differently than you do because I'm reading it probably for different reasons than you are. Um, I liked how it talked about the the categories of referral, like you said, and um, so in the, one of the graphs, one of the the, the figures, it gave um, the categories. There were five main categories for the referrals, and then um, it broke each category down into three or more reasons for referrals. So, like, there was quality of life that was the number one referral ranking, and it was referred 1,490 times. Um, But within that category, uh, the the reasons for referral were uh, quality of life, end-of-life support, and coping. And so my thought about this information was that it would be really useful if I were, like, going to propose music therapy to a hospital, then I might be able to give them that these are the reasons why people are referred for music therapy. And uh, if I if I were working for a hospice and wanted to streamline the referral process, then I might use the information from this to inform that. And I'm not currently working in hospice, but I still think that understanding how the referral reasons were determined and then how they were categorized might help me to define my referral reasons in my own setting. So I really liked it for for those reasons. Yeah, and when I was... Starting out, I've started two music therapy programs, and when I was, is that right? Yeah. (laughs) All of a sudden, my career seems a lot longer than it has been. Um, But when I was starting out the music therapy program at Hospice of Dubuque, a big part of my job was teaching people how to make referrals for music therapy and why they should make referrals for music therapy services. And I used to joke, I'm like, you know, Frank likes music is not really a great referral for music therapy services. So I, this was, I don't even remember what year this was, 2007 maybe? Um, So there were, some of the studies that are cited in this article were current at the time. And that was what I would do. I would talk to, I would talk to facilities, not only just my own hospice team, but also facilities in the community, because people at the facility can make referrals for music therapy services for hospice patients. And if they were under our care. And and I would say, you know, these are the top reasons for referral. So, you know, let me teach you what's a good referral for music therapy services, especially because I was one music therapist and I think I worked I worked 32 hours a week. Um, so there was no way that I could see all of, you know, I couldn't go see all the Franks who liked music. But right. I could go see Frank if, you know, the hospice nurse felt like he was, socially isolated and that he might be experiencing some spiritual distress. That's a great re- you know that's a great referral for music therapy. So this mm-hmm. I can see this being a great tool for in services, you know, for educating even educating people at hospices where music therapists already work. Right. Well, the other thing is that hey, if I were a brand new music therapist and I were working in this this type of setting, then I could take a look at, at the referral reasons and um, think about what that means to be referred for music therapy to manage pain symptoms, 
right? Mm-hmm. I could think about what that means, and then I could um, maybe come up with a sort of a, a plan for how I would address pain. And then I, I would have a menu, sort of, so to speak. Like every session, even if you have a plan, it's pretty, for me, it's pretty improvisational anyway. But I would know that, okay, I'm going in to work with Frank for pain management, and these are the things that I tend to do for pain management, right? Mm -hmm. So it would make my session planning a little clearer, I guess. Well, and, you know, in hospice care, when when you walk into the room and you have to immediately assess your patient – um, and you may have this great plan. This happened to me more times than I care to admit. You know, you might have this plan in your head, and you think, oh, this is the thing I'm going to work on today, and then you walk in, and let's say Frank is clearly having a pain crisis, right? And you're like, oh, that thing I thought I was going to work on today, now, you know, maybe we're not going to work on his on his living legacy. I We need to address this pain issue right now, and you're absolutely right. Okay, in my head, these are the things I know. You know, it looks if I can get him to rate his pain, and I know about what range that is. Okay, I know from the literature and from my clinical experience, here are the things that work. You know, within that range of pain. Um, and if Frank tells me that his pain is an eight on a out of ten on a scale, I'm calling the nurse <laughs> and <laughs> getting this poor guy some PRN medication too. So yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. Having a better understanding of what the referral reason is gives you a much better opportunity to effectively plan and implement those sessions for the benefit of the clients because it's all about the clients. Right. And uh, so let's move on to the next one. It's the effects yeah. of music salience on the gait performance of young adults. And um, This one wins the award for largest number of authors. I know. There's a lot. And they're from Canada. And I'm not going to butcher their names on the air, so you can go look. You them want up. me to do it? Um, <laughs> if you will, if you'd like. <laughs> okay, I believe we have Dr. De Bruin. Dr. Uh, uh, looks like Kempster, Doucette, Doan, uh, Dr. Hugh or Dr. Who, and Dr. Brown, and they're all from the University Excellent. of Lethbridge in Canada. Hi, neighbors. They're all in Alberta. That's what the AB stands for. <laughs> Oh, I did not know that. I feel like I should, but I did not. Um, <laughs> you learn them when you live this far north. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, they are neighbors. I guess I know more about Mexico maybe than you do. Perhaps. No, I, anyway. I'm guessing you do. <laughs> this one was looking at how... Um, get, so the music preference of the patient was um, influence on gait, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So they're looking at rhythmic auditory stimulation, and there's tapes available of rhythmic auditory stimulation um, that just use music that works for that technique. And these researchers were looking at whether music preference, so actually choosing music that the patient enjoys had an effect or if you had to use or or if, you know, it was just as effective as the the pre-selected music that's available. And what they found was that, the, they call, so they call the music preference uh, salience, 
meaning mm-hmm. that if it's familiar and enjoyable to the listener. And um, their findings showed that, that the music does influence the gait and that salience does have an effect on that. And they were looking at people without injury because this was a preliminary study. So in future studies, they would look at probably people that are in, like have had a stroke or uh, cerebral palsy to see if it has the same effect. Yes. And I, I, this for me, when we teach psychology of music here, we talk a lot about the importance of patient preference. And there are lots of other studies that look at the influence of, when we look at the influence of music on anxiety, um, on pain, um, on stress, that patient preference plays a huge part in whether or not the intervention is effective. So if you, and, and I joke about this with students, I'm like, so, you know, if you go and you pick a piece of music that a patient hates, you know, it, you shouldn't expect to see a whole a whole lot of positive change come about. Um, but if you pick the right piece of music and you pick a piece of music that is important, is salient to the patient, then you, chances are that you're going to see a lot more positive change. And that, I mean, I think intuitively that makes a lot of sense. Um, so it was kind of nice to read this article and go, oh, hey, look at that. It carries over into gate training too. Right. So I like that there's more evidence that uh, patient preference is important, too, just in general. Yeah, so that whole buy this CD and you'll be cured by the morning. (laughs) This is another reason why music therapists are important. Right, exactly. (laughs) I think that's what I got most out of that article as well, was that this is kind of explaining why music therapists are important. Um, the last and I want to give a quick is, shout out. Oh. I want to give a quick shout out to the Canadian Institutes for Health Research for funding that study because it's fantastic to see that we have other national organizations, funding institutions that are funding music therapy research in in our in our countries around the world. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, the the last article is coping infused dialogue through patient preferred live music a medical music therapy protocol and randomized pilot study for hospitalized organ transplant patients. And this was done by Tyler James Hogan, who works at the Autism Home Support Services, which I thought that was interesting. And it made me think that maybe he's doing this as part of his degree. But I thought it was interesting that a person who works at an autism home support services would do a study on organ transplant. So I just thought that was Unique. And then also uh, Michael Silverman was the second author on this one. And uh, the purpose of this pilot study was to develop a coping-based medical music therapy protocol um, that combines the with the – these are terms that they use, and we like acronyms in research apparently. Yes, so it's, it combined coping-infused dialogue, which would be CID, with patient-preferred live music, PPLM, and then measure the effects of the resulting CID-PPLM protocol on mood and pain for hospitalized transplant patients. And they did a pre-test, post-test, single-session weightless control design 
with 25 patients that were randomly assigned to the experimental conditions or the control conditions were the usual care. Um, and they found that the participants in this protocol received, well, actually, not they found that. The, the participants in the protocol received a single 30-minute session that integrated the um, identification and knowledge of the coping skills with the live music that the patient selected. And there was no difference between the groups for the pre-test, and there were significant correlations between pre- and post-test measures. So what I liked about this um, article was the explanation of what this protocol was, the coping-infused dialogue through patient-preferred live music. Um, it was based on another protocol developed by Sherry Robb, and it, so you can look up the the citation for that one and get more information about her protocol. But we're, I find that I'm, I'm always looking for protocols because they help to organize the way I think about my sessions, right? And uh, humans, human brains like organization. So we're always looking for ways to organize things. And protocols like this one help to organize that. So uh, it gave an outline of what the protocol was. So essentially it would be, you know, some introductory dialogue, and then select a song that you like from the songbook, and we sing the song. And then there's some more dialogue about something specific, and in this case it was local stressors and coping skills. So, like, what's it like being in the hospital, or how is that affecting you, These sorts of questions, and uh, some coping skill discussion. And then select another song with the understanding that, um, music listening can be a positive coping strategy, right? So then the therapist sings another song that the patient selects. And then you talk about global stressors. So like what um, are the everyday challenges of this organ failure and waiting for the transplant or recovering from the transplant? And then um, just asking some open-ended types of questions. Well, I guess they're not open-ended. They're more leading questions about like, promoting thought about coping strategies for those issues. And then another song is selected and sung. And then generalizing. So what are some of the things that we talked about today that you might like to try in the future when you're feeling stressed? Um, and then a, a fourth song and then some closure dialogue. So it outlines the session in a really nice way, and it helps to kind of explain something that I, I think that a lot of music therapists that might work in settings like this one, maybe not specifically with transplant patients, but maybe in um, uh, other medical settings or even other um, other types of settings and populations, how they might work and uh, give some some research-based background for doing the select a song from a book and um, let's talk about talk a little bit in between, right? Okay. I also like the flow chart that was included and that showed how they did, you know, went from recruitment to analysis of the data because it just made it a really nice picture. Is there anything you want to add real quick? Because we're about to be cut off from the show. Nope, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, fantastic. Thank you all for listening. I know that um, Deb Burns listened. Thanks for that. And uh, Carolyn Dobson listened, and I appreciate that a lot. So I appreciate those of you that listen, and I'd love to have your feedback. You can contact me at heartbeatmusictherapy.net, 
and uh, email me through the website and let me know what you think about the show. Our uh, our next journal club is going to be probably at the end of February or beginning of March, as soon as you know Megan and I can arrange that, and we'll talk about the last 2015 edition of the Journal of Music Therapy. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.